Hey, this is Jeff Blum, and you're listening to Strohs Across the Globe. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 2 of Strohs Across the Globe, the podcast presenting an international view on the Houston Astros, brought to you in association with Apollo Media, all Houston, all original. I'm your host, George Martin, also known as at UK on Twitter. First off, I would just like to thank everyone who listened to episode 1 and the positive feedback following that. Yes indeed, as you just heard, today's special guest on the podcast is part 2 of the Houston Astros broadcasting commentary team, our former infielder Jeff Blum. Safe to say, unfortunately, at present that the baseball world is somewhat in turmoil as MLB and the MLB Players Association continue their very public dispute over what constitutes an agreeable setup for a shortened 2020 season. I covered this in my discussion with Blum, along with its effects on minor league baseball before we assess the health of the Houston Astros in 2020 and beyond under James Click. Additionally, we touch upon the many challenges facing black players in MLB in light of the present global social unrest. Plus, we take a look through Blum's MLB career and what it was like to twice be part of the Houston Astros. Following the Jeff Blum feature, stay tuned for the announcement of which Astros fan outside the US has won the Justin Verlander replica Astros jersey competition. Exciting times indeed. Enough with the preamble, it's time for a long and very illuminating chat with Jeff Blum. I hope you enjoy it and if you do, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Right, following on from Todd Callis, I am delighted to welcome onto the show the other half of the commentating dynamic duo for AT&T Sportsnet Southwest, the switch-hitting, straight-talking, two-time infielder for the Houston Astros, the one and only Mr. Jeff Blum, a.k.a. Blummer. Thank you so much for joining me on Strohs Across the Globe. In these particularly extraordinary times, it feels very pertinent to ask this. How are you? I'm actually doing pretty well. It's good to be on with you, and uh, my family is is happy and healthy, and uh, we are just uh, doing the best we can during these times. I think that is really the main thing right now. Away from baseball during this lockdown through the pandemic, and great ideas like the Astros broadcast at Happy Hour, plus obviously your own podcast, Bleacher Blums. How have you been keeping yourself busy and also indeed sane during the lockdown? I, I imagine that your your relative army of daughters have kept things fairly lively. What have you been doing? Um, I'm just playing dad as often as I can. I've got four daughters and they're all in high school. So it's a pretty unique time for me to learn about, uh, you know, females as they get older. And that's been a lot of fun and uh, been doing a really good job of trying to stay in the best shape I can because I've got so much time on my hands. And then, you know, it, like you just mentioned, uh, you know, with Zoom, Skype and the ability to communicate, even though I can't see people in person, I've been doing a lot of uh, interaction over the internet and keeping my own podcast going. I appreciate you bringing that up. But, uh, you know, it's just I really haven't said no to any opportunities to either go on radio or to go on, uh, you know, quick TV hits or to do podcasts, you know, which I encourage everybody to do. I think you're doing a great job. But, uh, you know, it's just it's it's interesting that I don't have a routine. So it, it gets a little tough to remember what I, what I'm doing or how to do it or when I'm doing it. So the scheduling gets a little tough, but other than that, uh, I'm just trying to stay as engaged as I possibly can and doing the podcasts and zoom meetings has actually been very good for me to keep the information going. Yeah. I think that's a really good point at you in terms of the zoom era that we're in during this lockdown. It's great to be able to actually connect with people despite not seeing them. I think that has 
lessened the, the load somewhat in terms of the mental side of things because it is difficult being physically distanced from everyone in terms of the lockdown how's it looking like there in houston now are things reopening Oh, yeah. No, you know, Texas is, uh, you know, a little more on the conservative side as far as how they uh, handle their politics. But they've also done a very good job in in seeing the data and understanding that people are hurting economically. And they, you know, I think Governor Abbott here in Texas is trying to do the best job he can with the data he has to understand how to try and navigate this. Uh, pandemic and still, uh, you know, do as much as he can to try and keep the economy going as hard as that is. But uh, we we actually, you know, the the essential workers have done a great job in keeping supermarkets open and keeping a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the you, you know uh, stores open. I mean, it really hasn't been that bad. I know that the uh, restaurant business has taken a little bit of a hit, but uh, there's mm. certain aspects where they immediately made the adjustment has probably been the most promising thing about this pandemic is that how people have adapted to the current situation and tried to make the best of it and that's probably what's most encouraging but uh, texas out here other than the heat going up everything else seems to be pretty normal yeah i know you guys get pretty extreme heat there we could do with some of that here actually we're uh, taking a little (laughs) bit of a turn for the worst in the last week after a very dry may on the subject of the pandemic, naturally, it brings us to a discussion of Major League Baseball in 2020 and the sort of will they, won't they, of whether there's actually going to be a season. I think with the situation, it's been so organic in terms of the different proposals. It's almost been hard to keep up. Uh, first, there was talk of around 82 games, so around about a half season. Then we've recently had the players come back with a proposal for 114 games and then discussion from MLB of 50 games. And then the players coming back saying, actually, can we, you know, maybe we're looking more like 70 games. I mean, I have to say, with the situation right now, and the pandemic still very much active globally, including in the US, are we right to even want a season right now? I mean, does, does the risk outweigh the rewards? I was seeing something on um, Twitter today from the New York Daily News, a chap called Bradford Davis, which was relating to the, I think it was a 67-page document that MLB had put together outlining the health aspects of a potential season. And only, I think, four or five different cities had even accepted that they'd received the document. What are your thoughts on it? Are we being selfish to want a season? Um, if, if we're not the only sport that's being selfish, you know, the NBA has announced they're coming back. The NFL hasn't made any adjustments on their scheduling other than some of their training camps. Mm. Uh, you know, college football is allowing their football players to get back on campus here in the U.S. You know, the NHL has announced that they are going to go ahead and play a uh, playoff type system to, uh, su- you know, basically to supplant a regular season. So, I mean, you know, it's not just baseball that's going out there. I I mean, I understand the intrigue around baseball and that people are going to put a little more emphasis on that because this is actually their season. But, you know, with all the financial uh, issues aside, they put some heavy health uh, protocols in place, which I think are pretty extreme, to be honest with you. If they're actually able to fulfill all those, I would imagine these guys would be pretty safe. And I've also heard that, uh, you know, Major League Baseball is going to give these guys saliva tests um, I believe don't, I mean, it, it, I'm not sure, but I believe it's going to be every day. So the saliva test is a little more less intrusive than the nasal swab. So they're trying to keep ca- yeah. take care of those guys. And, you know, full disclosure, if you've been following my social media accounts, I just called a, a three, three day tournament in uh, just North of college station here in Texas, where 90 yeah, athletes. Yeah, Yeah, CSBL, the College Summer Baseball Invitational, and and they tested everybody coming in, 
If you tested negative, you got to get inside the bubble and you couldn't move outside of it until the tournament was over. And then we had Mm -hmm. exit testing. So they kind of gave a brief, you know, example of what the possibilities are. And I think that, you know, with as fast as medicine is moving, I'm hoping that there actually will be a vaccine, hopefully later in the year, which will make things obviously a lot easier. But uh, the template that the, the baseball has would make them, other than golf, who's coming back, NASCAR came back. And uh, I don't think they're, you know, di- trying to disguise their the risk. I just think they're trying to figure out a way to work within that risk. True. I, I think the worry is that if a season starts and then there's a second wave, which then knocks the season out, that it would, uh, I think we all shudder at the thought of that. I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen and it's just sort of a worst case imagination of how things could go. Moving on to the actual proposals and, and the way that it's been unfolding. I mean, I hate to be pessimistic, but this public game of cat and mouse being played between MLB and the Players Association, that's oh. a really bad look for baseball, isn't it? It comes oh. across really bad. It, it, no, I think you nailed it. And, you know, I, I'm a fan just like you are. Mm. But I also understand, you know, that there are two sides of this story. I think that they need to emphasize that this is not a collective bargaining agreement. This is working within, you know, the current situation. But I'm with you in the sense that I'm so sick and tired of all the leaks from uh, the MLB offices and the commissioner's office about certain proposals. I'm sick and tired of, you know, everybody having to put their proposal on the table, because when I watch the NBA or I watch the NHL, and obviously there are different circumstances, but when I look at those leagues or the NFL, they said, we've got an idea. We're going to try and make this work. So guess what? They lock the doors. They call each other. They get it done. The NBA did that. The NHL has done that. Uh, golf has done that. You know, it's NASCAR did it. You know, even the Premier League, the, the, even the Premier yeah, League over here. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think. Yeah. yeah, the and Bundesliga and all that. I mean, these, mm. if you want to get this done, you're going to find a way to get this done. But I, I, I'm with you in the sense that I cannot stand, you know, negotiating this in the public sphere because it doesn't make anybody look good. It doesn't make the players look good. It really has backfired on the owners with some of these proposals they're coming out with. And I wish that they would just find a way, take a couple of days, lock the door, turn off your Twitter and get this thing done. I think that's a, a very good and mature way to look at it. And I, I, I do wish that would be an outlook that the players and the owners would take because it seems at this stage that neither side is fully in the right and it's just draining that support for mm-hmm. either side from fans. And surely that's a key part of this. I think that if, if they don't see that, that's really not looking at the bigger picture. I mean, a question that comes to mind for me, for you, as a former major leaguer, can you put yourselves in the players' shoes? If, if you were a player right now, what would your thoughts be on the situation? Well, I, I actually, I, I believe that when they talked back in March, that's where I think a lot of the hang-up is for the players. When you, when you say you're going to prorate my salary throughout the course of the season, which most contracts are because, you know, there's a chance you get sent down, there's a chance you get fired, you know, I mean, there's ways to look at a contract and it's basically per game or per day during the season. So if you've got a 162 game schedule, you've got 18 days off built in there, you're looking at, you know, 180 180 days that you're spreading your, your, uh, your paycheck over. So you can break it down to per day how much you make. And that's what players and owners originally verbally agreed, whether it was on paper or not, you know, doesn't mean anything because both sides were out there saying, if we get a season, no matter what it is, we will prorate it, you know, your pay per day, which I think was a reasonable thing to talk about. The problem was, is when the owners agreed to that and when the players agreed to that, they, they, they were under the assumption there would be fans in the seats. And that's where a lot of revenue comes for owners 
And that's also what bases a lot of players negotiating their contracts. So I think it's, you know, it works. It's a double-edged sword because the owners look at revenue coming in from concessions and ticket sales. And then players are also negotiating their market value because it's within, you know, fan support in what they get paid. So I think that, you know, both sides could take a little bit better look at this and negotiate it a little bit better and be a little more understanding and saying, okay, we're in an, we negotiated that when we thought fans were going to be in there. Fans aren't going to be here. Now, how much are we willing to give up on each side to be, to be accommodating for both sides? But I think the owners have really taken advantage of saying that they're going to lose so much money, you know, uh, because fans aren't going to be in the yeah. stands. And then it's that's what's frustrated the players and made them want to stick to the prorated salary because that's what they feel they're, they're worth. And, you know, part of me does agree with the players in the sense that, you know, if, if you're going to ask me to go out there and you're not going to prorate my salary 100% to a day, you know, day per day pay is I'm risking my health to go out there. The owners just have to go ahead and say, yes, this is what we're going to do. And then sit in their office away from everybody. These players are actually risking their health to go out there and play. And I think that needs to be accommodated. One point that I'm really glad you brought up there is in relation to that initial agreement from March. I mean, was this just naivety on the part of the owners to assume that there would be fans there? I mean, it's a pandemic, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. Surely the fans would be kind of the first, when I say collateral damage, and obviously that's probably the wrong choice of words, but in terms of that they would be the ones that would be gone before anything else. I mean, purely to p- protect them. So I, I find that astounding that the owners would take that standpoint to me it comes across as a little bit snide a little bit dishonest the way that they've approached it i don't know whether that agreement that they had with the players was as you said written or verbal or whatever it may be but it seems very odd that such a huge oversight would then be allowed to then snowball into this situation where it's affecting the agreed prorated salaries of the players Um, and and you know what i don't mean to cut you off but that being being said i'm not sure if you read it but this week in uh, texas Governor Abbott said that he's he's going to bump the the ability for stadiums and bars to have fifty percent capacity. So who's to say mm-hmm. that you know they try and angle for a situation with the players where they negotiate a low prorated salary or thirty three percent off their original contract, and then all of a sudden fans are allowed to come in and they reap the benefit yeah. of revenue coming in. So, you mm-hmm. know what? I mean, it's kind of an interesting situation. Yeah. As a fan, naturally, you tend to side with players. It's, it's just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. I really hope they resolve it one way or another very, very soon, as I'm sure everyone does. What do you think will happen? Do you think we'll actually get a season? Because I see people like Jeff Passan talking on Twitter and with a high amount of confidence that there will be baseball. And I have to say, the back and forth doesn't fill me with confidence that it's actually going to happen. <laughs> that makes two of us because yeah. you know when this when this thing first uh, started to be negotiated i was like okay that's an outlandish deal but you know having been in negotiations in the past as a player and witness you know i got drafted in 1994 when the strike happened and then watched them come back and then everybody kind of understood that the business is going so well that they want to you know both sides are doing so well that they want to kind of keep it copacetic and be able to move on and it's and I, and having been through a couple of labor negotiations and, you know, I believe it was 2002 or three where I actually, you know, started to pack a bag. And I was like, man, we haven't come to a deal and this is the last day of it. And uh, I went home that night and they figured it out. So I'm kind of hoping it's a similar situation where we just kind of all of a sudden hear, you know, silence. Please, dear God, here's some silence from both sides. <laughs> and, yeah, and, definitely. Have, and, we, and we wake up the next day with something that says baseball will be on and the players will be protected and the owners are Mm -hmm. happy with what's going on because 
you know, that's hopefully how things work out. And I think we're to that point where, you know, some of these negotiations are borderline. Like you said, you're already angry to begin with, and now you're getting angrier and then it's almost become laughable at, you know, with some of these proposals that are going back and forth, that somebody has got to be able to figure this thing out. For sure. On the subject of this season, if it does happen naturally in a shortened and curtailed format, one point which you mentioned on your most recent Bleacher Blum episode was that you thought it would be quite an interesting sort of one-year experiment if you have a short season of around 50 games, maybe four-man rotations, sort of something which could be like a testing ground for a different version of the game almost in terms of trying to generate interest going forward. The question I would pose to you is, if you have a 50-game season, does that hold any legitimacy historically? Because uh, I know people like to throw around imaginary asterisks in relation to 2017, but surely you'd have an actual. <laughs> I'm sure you'd have an actual asterisk next to a champion of a 50-game season. It seems like it would be a real sort of sore thumb sticking out in the annals of baseball history. Yeah, it will, and I think you know that's part of what you know Major League Baseball could do a better job of is if they actually get this game game going this season, and it is 50 to 60 games. Go ahead and market this thing as a, as, as a one-time experience to try and bring fans in and make it as unique as possible because your, your life in the UK is unique this year in 2020. Our lives here in the U.S. are unique Absolutely. as it is. And basketball got uh, abruptly interrupted, and they're going to start back up with 22 teams and play a playoff. You know, the NHL is just going to a straight playoff format. So why not make it more interesting? Why not make it more intriguing? The golf, you know, their compressed season, they they made a point of getting all their majors in, even though it's going to be a compressed season. So the fans, the fans are going to adjust and adapt. And I think if baseball is able to come back, they really need to market this to the broader base and try and increase their fan base by saying, this is unique. We're going to do some things different. We're going to, you know, extra innings are going to be treated differently. Whatever they, if they decide to go international rules with, you know, bases loaded, one out in the tenth inning, or if they go to a home run derby, or if you see a four-man rotation, because it would be great for me to be able to call games and have a Justin Verlander or a Zach Granke go every four days. I think that would be fantastic, and that would increase fans coming to the game or watching games more often. How about the fact that if you, in a 50-game season, you have the potential to have a guy, like you said, it'll probably have an asterisk next to it, but you'll have a guy hit 400. You know, we've seen guys catch fire. Or what if a guy all of a sudden goes off mm, and hits, true. you know, 25 home runs in 50 games? It would be remarkable to see what these guys could actually do in a short amount of time if somebody gets going. And then how about marketing to every city that is in Major League Baseball and say, in 50 games, literally – any team has a chance to get into the playoffs. And if they expand it to 14 oh, or yeah. 16 teams, that is only going to appeal to more of the fan base across the country and make it way more interesting. So, you know, as tough as it might be to get this thing done, no matter how long the season is, it's a real, for me personally, being on the broadcast side, it's a real mm. opportunity to try and broaden your fan base and make it a little more interesting. You know, maybe have double headers where they're both seven innings. Why not? Yeah, I mean, it's inter- yeah, definitely. I think something outside the box like that is very much an interesting wrinkle to add add to the sport because obviously there have been discussions in recent years once again of people leaving the sport in terms of fans and where the future of baseball is headed to. I guess it is a, a bit of a sliding doors moment because you have that on the one side and then you have on the other side this potential, well, a potential doomsday scenario with this collective bargaining agreement renewal negotiations set for next year. I mean, do you think this is, and I, I relate this back to, I was on a podcast, our MLB UK community podcast, we had NBC's Craig Calcaterra on there a week or so ago. 
And he was actually fairly positive about the whole situation, sort of looking at it as if, yeah, it's another crisis, but baseball's been through many crises before, and this is just another one. I mean, do you, would you view it like that, or is this potentially, are we looking at a potential catastrophe that would even make 1994 pale in comparison? Uh, I think if we miss this season, it could, you know, exacerbate itself in 2021 at the end of the season mm-hmm. when the collective bargaining agreement is up. I think that could compound the issue. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as far as history is concerned, I think uh, at least, you know, and I'm not in on the owners meetings and I'm not uh, privy to some of the information there around. And it's, you know, from the outside looking in, we all look at owners as, you know, the stone cold, harsh business world they live in. And the players are obviously the more emotional and, uh, you know, passionate about the game. Mm. And I think that's where the history of the game, because every union meeting and every union call that I had always was based on, remember what happened in 94, remember what happened in the 80s, remember why those guys did what they did. And even to the point, you'll see some of these guys on Twitter, you know, that are making comments about the current situation and why the union is as, as stringent as it is, is because they understand that players have a small window to go out and maximize their talent to make money. And, you know, that's where I hope fans understand why they are so strong is because they understand that a major league career that's only four years, you got to make as much money as you can before you're kicked out of the system and have to go lead a real life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, there's guys that play 14, 15 years and make, you know, tons of money. But at the same time, everybody is in this fight together. And in every meeting, you're reminded of why we are the only union that has never been broken. So you can call it stubbornness you can call it arrogance but you know inside the union you definitely call it there's a historical sense to the fact that you know we will not be broken and we will do what's best for the game and that's their primary focus don't ever lose sight of that too they want what's best for the game Mm. we brought up there just a quick question how much involvement as a player do you actually have with the players association obviously they have their representatives under max scherzer's or high up on the list of reps at at the moment but like during your career for example how much connection would you have with them and how would it work uh, well, you, every team has their own union rep and they would be on the, you know, the calls, whether it be weekly, monthly, or depending on how things were going. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you know, we would have a meeting in spring training where every player rep would be there or every, uh, union rep would be in there in the meeting. We could ask all the questions we want. Uh, you know, obviously we can get in contact anytime we have any questions personally, if our union rep on, on the team does not answer it for us. And then uh, there's there's always conference calls going on because I remember as a member of the Expos, they were talking about contracting the team, and I was on a phone call during that one of those off seasons almost every other day, you know, with the the fluctuating content between Minnesota, Montreal, are we going to be contracted? How is that going to affect us? And we had a ton of questions, you know, is my job just going to be eliminated? But they would always answer them, they always listened to them. And the accessibility of uh, Tony Clark and some of the other people that work under him are, are always there. And it's what's kind of fun for me now is that a lot of my contemporaries that I played with, you know, are inside the union. I know Tony Clark from playing against him and I've done events with him and, and spoke on behalf of the union. So I've, I've created these great relationships to the point that even in this day, I can call the union and say, hey, I've got an issue with, you know, my tax situation in New York. Can you guys yeah. help me out? How about my pension? You know, there's ways, they're so accessible. It makes it so great. And uh, if you don't understand something, they'll put you in front of somebody or put you on the phone with somebody that will help you uh, understand it. 
I feel like that is something which I may be speaking completely without any kind of knowledge on it, but I feel like there's something which is lacking from certain sports, particularly over here as well. I don't imagine that the players' union is anywhere near as coherent within its group and supportive as that. It's heartening to hear that the players are protected in such a strong way. Sorry to focus on another negative aspect of this current situation, but I mean, another point which I have to come to is the minor leagues, with the redundancies that have gone around. And then the impending contraction of, of what is it, 41, 42 teams, however many it was. It feels mm-hmm. to me like Major League Baseball are playing this terribly, terribly wrong along with the owners. I mean, am I missing something? This is the future of the sport at stake here, surely. I mean, it's, it's a terrible, terrible look. No, I appreciate you bringing it up. And it's actually, you know, it's, it's great uh, you being a fan of the game and actually getting into the weeds a little bit and trying to mm. understand what's going on. Because you're right, the landscape is changing not just at the major league level, but also at the minor league level. And that's where I think a lot of us guys who, you know, grinded through the minor leagues and had to earn the right to get to the big leagues is what we're eternally grateful for is that there was opportunity. And if you're taking away opportunities for guys to chase dreams, that's where I kind of have a little bit of an issue. And going back to just the overall you know, negotiation that we're having is part of the understanding is you know, the owner and player side, but on the owner's side, they have, they're contracting the minor leagues. Like you said, they're, they're getting rid of possibly 40 plus teams, which is an excessive amount of teams. If you have 20 guys, 25 guys per roster that think about how many jobs that is. I'm not very good at math and I don't do it quickly, but that's a lot lot of jobs. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you think about that. And then also in what, two, a day or two, we're going to see the, uh, the amateur draft. And that's only mm-hmm. going to be five rounds. And I know it's a unique time, the pandemic and the issues with that, but it's only going to be five rounds. But that thing used to be 60, 65 rounds. Now it's after this year, it's going to be knocked down to 20 rounds. So, I mean, they continually subtract from players' opportunities to play baseball, yet they're asking for more concessions on the player side. And that's where I kind of, you know, you've got to take the whole picture into account. So I appreciate you bringing that up about the minor leagues because, you know, I talked to, you know, my buddy Tuttle on our podcast. We made a joke on our podcast mm. saying that if we were draft eligible in 2020, guess who would, yeah, you would were not seventh. have had an the opportunity? Seventh round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were seventh round, weren't you? So, yeah, it says, um, yeah it's, it's crazy. For me, it looks like the owners of the major league teams, they are not seeing the wood for the trees, so to speak, because, I mean, you're taking away baseball from communities, you're taking away baseball from locations, you're taking away... That's a greater point, oh, too. Honestly, it just makes no sense in the bigger picture. And I find it very disheartening as a fan. Naturally, my focus is hugely on the Astros, but I think many, even the majority of baseball fans, you know, we, we love watching the game as a whole. We love seeing it. We love the sport we love the whole kind of aura of baseball and everything that comes with it and the minor leagues are absolutely intrinsic to that and it seems like they're being cut out the picture for really not a great reason or motive at all so i i can't really understand that to be honest and it's very disappointing to see i think it's great to see things like that adopt a minor league uh, scheme which i think is 448 i checked this afternoon minor leaguers who've been sponsored for this year in, in light of all the redundancies that have been made following the pandemic etc and things like that are great but they're naturally only able to go so far so uh, I don't know if there's any chance for Major League Baseball to kind of walk that back at all and rethink things through but I think they should it's just a terrible look for them moving on speaking of responding to a crisis brings us neatly onto the Houston Astros Uh, if, if we do have baseball this year with all the upheaval and uh, aside, as you're saying, from in Texas, largely empty ballparks that they're going to be playing in for the foreseeable future. Um, how do you see the Astros doing this year? 
I, you know, what the, the Astros are really interesting and I'm tired of hearing, you know, I, I think Adam Ottavino for the New York Yankees said something most recently in the, you know, ill-timed interview saying that, you know, the, the only ones benefiting from this pandemic are the Astros. Yeah, that and, was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes from a position of, you know, uh, it, I don't know, it, may, it makes me feel like he's sensitive to being booed. And I'm not sure that is something that bothers the Houston Astros. And I know that kind of plays into the narrative that a lot of people have about the Astros being maybe a little more, mm. you know, we'll, we'll call it confident or slightly arrogant. But I think that the Astros, knowing how the mentality of these guys, they took it so personally that they were being attacked that I think they wanted to get on the field and they wanted everybody to air their grievances. I think they just wanted to get on the field and play the game and expose their talent and then let fans do what they're going to do. Because as ball players, you anticipate getting booed on the road. But it would be a little bit different this year. Yes, I think it's going to be a little you know, disappointing that fans aren't going to be in the stands. And they may get a break in that sense. But at the same time, I'm just not sure that you know, the Astros were you – know, they, they're going to get booed this year, next year, the year after that. But these guys thrive on – you know, not being, man, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, not being appreciated because these guys are good, man. You know that oh, because yeah. you're a fan, yeah. but these guys, mm-hmm. if you strip all that away and you look at what happened in 2019, where there were provisions put in place, there were, you know, proctors and, you know, people watching the Astros every single game, mm-hmm. they put up the best offensive numbers of any Astro team on the planet ever. We will every year moving forward will be compared to the 2019 Astros and they played it straight. And that's part of what yep. kind of upsets me. And I know it upsets the players and the fans is that nobody recognizes yep. that they were eight outs away from being one of the best teams ever in Major League Baseball. Uh, uh, and uh, they did that, it the right honestly. way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. I'm trying to not talk about 2019. You can probably tell from <laughs> my voice. It's, I, I cannot believe that team didn't get it done. It hurts. It really does. Because, uh, like I said, they were eight outs away from coronating a season that would go down forever as one of the greatest in the entire history of the sport. And instead, they go down as a, unfortunately, as a, as a nearly team because they couldn't get it done. They couldn't get over mm-hmm. that line. And it's particularly galling, just to slightly go on a tangent, that, that, yeah, to see fans questioning the legitimacy of the 2019 season because I think anyone with a right mind would look at the evidence that was presented from the scandal and look at the everything that's come forward about 2019. There's not been one shred of anything that holds any sort of weight to suggest yep. that anything was awry with 2019. And, yeah, I, I think particularly looking at someone like Jose Altuve, and I think, come on, this, oh, this guy is playing his heart out day in, day out and have his entire reputation besmirched but something that he wasn't really even involved with by the, the breakdowns of who was doing what. And I don't, I don't want to get into the money shy of that because that's <laughs> not what we're here for. But, um, yep. but yeah, it really does rankle. And I'm excited to see this team have another crack at a title. So to, to not have a 2020 season as it stands is very frustrating because I feel like they still have that, even without Garrett Cole, I think they still have that mm-hmm. fire there. They still have, obviously, with, with Springer still there uh, for the time being. We, we, we've 
have all the pieces in place to have to give it a real another go and, and see if we can make it right after what happened at the end of 2019. I have to say, I like the move for Dusty Baker as a firefighter in the short term. And I really like the appointment of James Click as the GM. I think it's exactly the right kind of guy from his history with the Rays to, to try and bring us into the next era of Astros baseball, because naturally this team isn't going to be around forever as much as we hate to uh, think about it. Yep. They're not going to be around forever. I mean, how, how do you see the next five years going for the Astros? Um, it's going to be interesting. You know, one thing I do take solace in, because you're right, if this season isn't played and we lose Michael Brantley, Josh Reddick, George Springer, Yuli Gurriel, it's going to be, I know it's going to be extremely painful for fans, but it's also extremely mm-hmm. painful for me because I've grown to appreciate these guys and they've given me so much to talk about in the booth about how great they are and how much fun they are to be around. And that would be really disappointing for me. But uh, the nature of the business is that guys do move on. We found that out with Garrett Cole going Mm -hmm. in free agency to the New York Yankees to the highest bidder. Uh, You know, next year's free agency is going to be obviously tremendously different. And maybe that helps keep uh, guys like Brantley and George around. You know, maybe Josh. I hope so. Mm. You know, so. You know, there, there might be a, a minor silver lining in that sense. But, uh, you know, in the next, next four or five years, it's going to be an opportunity, again, for the development staff of the Houston Astros to get some of these young arms up there. Uh, we saw glimpses of Jose Urquidy. We've seen yeah. glimpses of uh, Brian Abreu, Abreu, who mm. I'm super excited about, Josh James in a full season. So, Pitching wise, I think we, you know, the Astros should be okay. Jordan Alvarez, obviously, is yeah, be time, super good. Uh, you know, Kyle Tucker, we're still waiting to see who he is in the big leagues. Is he that guy that's a 25 and 100 RBI guy, or you know, what, what is he? So he could be that guy, and that would be a lot of fun to figure out. But uh, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna be good, but it's, it's not gonna be good as it was. You know, because that's a lot to expect over the last three years, you know, three, four years of 100 win teams and ridiculous, uh, you know, on base percentages and slugging percentages. You know, you may see a little bit different team instead of just going out there and pounding on guys. You may have to construct a team that's going out there being competitive, playing small ball. But one thing I think the Astros have really done a very good job of. And I think James Click is really going to be a nice asset to the Astros because Jeff Luno started with good pitching, good defense, and getting guys that can, you know, work the zone and get hits. Yeah. And then you bring in James Click, and we actually – I had a chance to talk to him the other day, and they really, I think – I don't know if they perfected it, but they've done a very good job of creating good pitching and maximizing what they have on the pitching side. So that's where I think James Click moves into the Astros and continues to do a good job of nurturing – uh, drafting, nurturing, developing, pitching to be good. And he knows how to manipulate things. They've maximized, you know, average talent to the best that they can. And that's where I hope he comes over here and actually works with Jim Crane, who has a high budget, and he can maybe be a little more aggressive with things he wants to do. But uh, James Click, like you said, might be the guy that uh, uh, allows the Astros to continue to be great because, you know, Jim Crane is is willing to pay the money and have a good team out there. Absolutely. I think if the money's there, yeah, Click's record is speaking for itself in terms of what he can do, not so much 
turning water into wine, but <laughs> to, to maybe yeah. overemphasize it slightly. But yeah, I think in terms of being able to maximize what he's got, especially when we move beyond a generational Astros team to try and yep. establish the next strong team, which hopefully will be in place to challenge for championships, plural. Again, I'm interested to see that. And I'm glad you mentioned Jose Okidi. My next question was literally who are you most excited to see develop from this Astros team? And for me, it is Okidi. I thought he was terrific last season, especially in the postseason. For someone who didn't have experience at that level, he came in and he just nailed it. I'm very, very excited to see how he develops as a talent. And of course, we've got Lance McCullers coming back as well from, from his injury. Yeah, that's so, big. Um, yeah, if he can hit the ground, not so much running, but hit the ground nicely and gently and, and not damage himself, I think our rotation is still set for a little while and we've got lots of reasons to be positive there for sure. So hopefully we will see these guys in 2020. Switching the topic a little bit, Naturally, unfortunately, another crisis in 2020. And whilst this show is in no way a political show, I think it's imperative that we, as a society and indeed as individuals, discuss the situation globally following the disgraceful killing of George Floyd, which surely amounts to murder. Yes. Naturally, a lot of different discussions which come on the back of this. It's a culmination of years of police killings which have a lot of suspicion attached to them in terms of being either outright disgraceful or not quite right in many ways and unfortunately having black victims and like yourself i read the the tremendous and eye-opening piece in the athletic where doug glanville yeah. had hosted several black former major leaguers i think it was uh, jimmy rollins ryan howard dontrell willis the troy hawkins and tory hunter from if i remember correctly and it was a really very eye-opening examination of what it's like to be a black ball player in the major leagues. And I guess this time, the question for you is, is as an outsider, did you ever notice anything in Major League Baseball, either within the clubs or in ballparks, that made you think these guys are getting a rough end of the kind of just social experience? Or was it something which they were just able to keep to themselves and deal with remarkable kind of strength and humility? Yes, strength and humility is is an amazing thing, and some of these guys have been through extraordinary uh, things just to get into the game of baseball, and then to succeed at the game of baseball with that kind of pressure, I can't even imagine. And part of me, and you know, I talk about it in our podcast how baseball or sport, period, because I, you know, coming up as a kid, I played basketball, baseball, soccer, mm-hmm. you know, track a little bit in. I, you know, what a blessing that was to be able to be put in situations where you're on teams where you don't get to pick your teammates. You get put, picked to be on these teams and you find a way to function. And reading that athletic article, oh man, it, 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 it made me feel terrible as a teammate because I felt like I always tried to be as inclusive as possible with everybody, whether you're Latin, Asian, African-American, yeah. And I really love the way that all, you know, all of those guys stated when you're in the clubhouse, it's, it's a little bit easier because we're all focused on one goal. And it's one thing I tried to emphasize on my podcast is saying, you know, when I was in that clubhouse, I can give a damn who was standing next to me as long as we were fighting the same fight. Mm, You know, we're, we're trying to win a championship. So I could care less if, you know, you, you know, if you were a five, two, you know, green goblin, but you can break and, and <laughs> yeah. play defense. I'm going to pat you on yeah. the butt and be like, man, way to go, dude. Mm. So, you know, and, you know, after games, you know, I would, I would ride, you know, I'd share cabs with guys. I would go out and have meals with, you know, uh, mm. you know, different, different races and ethnicities. But to read that article really frustrated me in, in two ways, because 
you know, I think it was, I mean, I can't remember. I, you know, somebody said as soon as they left the ballpark, they were in a different element. Yeah. And I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. damn, I never, ever thought of that. And I never even assumed that. And that's my ignorance. And then, you know, you get out there and all of a sudden you're, you're not, uh, you know, you're not on the same team. It's a different aspect. And the country doesn't have that one goal to be unified around. Mm. And that was really frustrating to hear. And the other thing that really frustrated me is that, and again, I can't remember who said it. It's a great article. Just go, yeah. go read it and try and, you know, wrap your head around what's going on. Somebody said, when I was in the clubhouse, you know, I kind of kept it to myself and I was like, damn, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I hope I, you know, I don't feel like I was, but I, and I never meant, <laughs> I just hope that that wasn't an issue in any of the clubhouses I've been in because, you know, I had locker mates like Brian Hunter when I first got traded to the Astros he treated me like gold and I, tr I did my best to be as you know, friendly to him because we were locker mates and we had a great time, same sense of humor, yeah. you know, trying to understand where these guys come from. And then I meet Latroy Hawkins, you know, Latroy and I are fantastic friends mm -hmm. and uh, I got a chance to see him this weekend. And what the beautiful thing about seeing Latroy this weekend was, is that even with the crisis that you're talking about going on, guess what Latroy did? He treated me like it was like we were in the clubhouse again, you know, 20 years ago. He didn't treat me like some other guy. That's where I think, you know, some of that humility comes through. And he's just like, hey, man, it may be a shit show out there, but yeah. you've been good to me. I'm going to be good to you and we're going to be friends and we're going to move on from this. But it's tragic what's going on out there. I agree with you in the, in the sense that there shouldn't be a disparaging uh, difference in between how humans are treated. And I hope it does change. I will gladly, oh my gosh, I will gladly try to be a part of the solution and help, uh, you know, be a little more understanding and learn a little bit more so that I can do my best to encourage uh, the equality around the globe. Yeah, absolutely, because it is a global issue. And I think that whilst the focus is very much on the American side of things, unfortunately, we have the same problems over here in the UK. And it's a discussion, a sad discussion that needs to be addressed head on. It's been going on for, for too long. And I echo every word you just said there. It's, it's about all of us having that sort of anti-racist stance on it. And I think that we can all do our bit. This is a difficult question and it might not be one that you have an answer to. I, indeed, I'm not sure I do either. But I was wondering, is there anything more that Major League Baseball can do to make it more of a welcoming environment for players of different backgrounds, particularly black players? It's great that they commemorate Jackie Robinson Day every year, but I sort of feel like baseball sometimes sits on its laurels a little bit and says, look, hey, look at us. We had Jackie Robinson break the color line. And obviously that's a, a fantastic and hugely important moment socially beyond baseball. But I think that it's important to look at what's happening now as well. And I, whatever that may be, I mean, I don't know whether there's something that baseball can do uh, to kind of cultivate more of an inclusive environment. Is that something which, am I making sense here or am I just rambling about? I don't no, know. you are. No, no, no. It's something that, to, to be brutally honest with you, is that, you know, I take, you take notes for your podcast. I take notes for mine. And when I'm doing a broadcast, mm. you know, you try and prepare as much as you can. And I remember vividly, it was about seven or eight months ago where I was just kind of, you know, it was in the NFL where there's not a lot of African-American coaches. I'm going, dude, some of the best players I've seen in the NFL haven't been African-American. Why aren't they moving into, you know, manager, managerial type positions to go out there and help contribute and uh, encourage leadership roles where they could have a voice, where they could have a platform to really, you know, encourage, you know, change or equality. And then I started looking at baseball. I'm going, damn. 
you know, we don't have anybody either, whether it's, and, and for me, it's for both Latin American and African American, because, you know, I had the chance to play for Felipe Alou, who I loved as a manager. I had a p- chance to play for Ozzy Guillen, as crazy as that dude was. Huh. I love playing for that dude, you know, and they understand the game. They just explain it differently. And I don't understand why there isn't more out there. And I'm not sure if it's, you know, it's, it's definitely not lack of talent. I don't know what not it is. Mm. And, and I want it. I, I wish there were a way, and maybe that's where Tory Hunter and and Jimmy Rollins and the Latroy Hawkins of the world, who are really have really become voices, can you know offer some opinions, offer some knowledge, and get more African American uh, players and people involved in management. Because I don't think it's a lack of talent. I don't think I don't know what it is, or if it's just the. The part that frustrates me is much like I talked about inside the clubhouse, the the predetermined, I can't talk about uh, inequality in the clubhouse. I think that, you know, that we need to get rid of that predetermined stereotype on both sides and just open the door and have a floodgate of information come in and people with great information and ideas and let that explore itself because uh, it's the game is only going to get better the more diverse it is and the more it appeals. Um, because I think that African-American ballplayer numbers have gone down and yeah. I'm not, I, w- I want to know more. I want to know why. And then I want to talk about how we fix that and encourage players to come in. Yeah, it's definitely a huge topic. I mean, I'd echo that in terms of from a footballers and soccer perspective over here. There are very few black managers and there have been an absolute wealth of incredibly talented black players. So if something doesn't add up there. I don't know whether it's the selection process has some kind of imbalance which needs to be addressed or whether they're not applying for these roles because there's something else. I don't know. You're absolutely right. I think baseball will be much the richer for that as and when it's addressed. And I think it does need to be addressed for sure. Moving on from that, I just want to have a little bit of a look over your career as as a major leaguer and just a few questions which come to mind for me. You played for six different teams over eight spells and 13 years. I think it was 1,389 games, if baseball reference is accurate on that. What was it like going back to 94? What was it like being drafted? And and what do you remember from that? must have been an absolutely incredible feeling. It was. And it goes to, uh, you know, just chasing that dream. And I was at Cal, uh, University of California, Berkeley for three years, trying to get better as a ball player, as a student, and also uh, gain some strength. You know, and I think that was a big deal for me going to school is that I needed to get a little bit bigger and stronger. But it Mm. turns out I also learned how to, to switch hit. So it was an opportunity for me to get better in that sense too. But once I got drafted, man, it was one of those things, uh, you know, where you get drafted and it happens in a hurry. Next day you got a plane ticket and wow. I was kind of in the, yeah, <laughs> it's, it, you, you kiss mom goodbye and you say, Hey, I'm going <laughs> to go play. And uh, I, w- I was, I was extremely excited about it. I got to go to Burlington, Vermont and uh, play at Centennial field, which was one of the oldest fields in all of America. So there was mm. nostalgia there. Uh, I was on 12 hour, 13 hour bus rides through the Appalachian mountains, you know, sleeping uh, on the floor of a bus. You know, those are things I wouldn't trade for the world. And, those are life uh, experiences. Would, yeah, those are, those are real yeah, life experiences. Yeah, it truly is. And you learn how to to work as an individual. You learn how to work as an as a as a teammate. Uh, you learn how to budget. You know, minimal paychecks. <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to get through all that. And uh, you also understand what job security is really quick because if you're not producing, uh, there's going to be you know five guys behind you going for your job. So. 
I, I was, first of all, grateful for the opportunity. And then uh, I was also grateful to be a Montreal Expo because they were an organization that really pushed guys through the system to get to the big leagues. So it afforded me a lot of opportunity to uh, play. I was going to say that being drafted, starting a career in the majors, or eventually starting a career in the majors north of the border, that must have been slightly kind of a new situation for you as well, or a different situation perhaps from maybe how you imagined it when you were coming through the college situation, I guess. What was that like in terms of starting your career in, in Canada? Well, I grew up in Southern California, so you couldn't get much further away from <laughs> Montreal, Canada than being mm-hmm. in Southern California. So a lot of the teams that I grew up watching were in that National League West with the Braves, Astros, Dodgers, Padres, and, and the sort. So, you know, the Montreal Expos were a team that you maybe saw once or twice a year. But uh, the older you get, the more you pay attention. And it was kind of interesting that I got drafted in 1994 because that was arguably the best year the Montreal Expos have ever had in their franchise mm-hmm. history. Yep. Yep. So I kind of told my buddy, I'm like, hey, man, I'm getting drafted by the best team in baseball right now. And uh, the strike happens. They, they you know, dismantle the team. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I, I hang a Expo jersey in my office very proudly because it's not only because it's a team that no longer exists, but it was a team that actually had a great deal of pride, even though they didn't have a lot of fans that were showing up to the game. I think yeah. every guy that wore that uniform understood that it was a pretty unique opportunity to be in a French-speaking province like that. Uh, like Quebec and, you know, actually play what felt like on foreign soil. But it was a blast. You know, the city was great. The fans uh, that did show up were were extremely uh, fervent about the Montreal Expos. And it's a shame that they're getting more attention now that they're not in Montreal. But uh, if they ever bring them back and go to Montreal, man, it's a hell of a stop on the on a major league schedule. Mm, I was going to say that just as a quick point. Do you think they'll ever be back there? I hope so. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I know that with this pandemic, they were actually showing a lot of games that I played in. And I was getting a lot of Twitter feedback from, uh, you know, some uh, Canadian sports channels and Canadian, you know, and Expo fans saying, oh, my gosh, there's Blomer. Look at those uniforms. You know, everybody loved them. And uh, I know that there is a pretty, pretty good sized groundswell if they were able to build a a quaint you know, uh, like San Francisco giant style stadium in Montreal downtown and really exploit the greatness of that city. I think there would be an opportunity to go back there and create another fan base because, uh, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And I think Montreal feels that way. Yeah. I think uh, that's a sentiment that's echoed by a lot of baseball fans that era slightly before my time as a baseball fan. But yeah, I think I do feel for them. I can't imagine what it would be like if even not being a Houstonian, I can't imagine what it would be like if the Astros were suddenly kind of disbanded yeah. and shipped off elsewhere. It would be a nightmare, to put it mildly. Hopefully for them, they do get another chance in the future. Moving on, you were traded to the Astros in 2002 for your first stint there. How was it at the time acclimatizing to life as an Astro and, and being in Houston? It, it was awesome. Uh, you know, as great as it was getting called up and playing for the Montreal Expos, I always tell the story that the day I got trapped or the day I, I, I showed up in the clubhouse for the Houston Astros, it felt like the second time I got called up mm. because the Astros, you know, they went 97, 98, 99, uh, you know, Central Division champions, yeah, 2000, they're still playing well. And, you know, they're on another upswing with having some good young guys, you know, Bagwell and Biggio kind of narrow, you know, they're, the end of their career is starting to narrow a little bit. And I get traded over there and it felt like getting called up again because I got traded to a contender. They were expected to win the Central the two years that I was there. And obviously I get traded away in 2003 and they go to the World Series. But I, I roll into that clubhouse and I'll never forget, you know, that. 
I, you know, I show up at Minute Maid. I get traded in spring training, so you're kind of finding your way and getting used to the team in spring. But when we showed up opening day in Minute Maid Park, and I go and I, I'm looking for my locker, and it goes Biggio, Bagwell, Osmus, Blum, Hunter. I went, man, <laughs> they just threw me right into the middle of this thing, and. Uh, so I, I got real quiet real quick and, uh, you know, watched Craig as much as I could. Mm-hmm. I watched Baggy as much as I could. I listened to Brad Ausmus talk to the pitchers and how he handled the game. And Brian Hunter was a veteran at the time, too, and established with the Astros. So I kind of, you know, so I had, you know, the, the greatness angle in Vigio Bagwell. I had the knowledge in Brad Ausmus and then the experience of Brian Hunter next to me. And uh, I love telling the story that about two or three months into the season, uh, as I'm lacing my shoes up after a game to go home, Jeff Bagwell kind of pipes up and goes, hey, why don't you hang out for a while? And that was my, you know, introduction to like legitimate introduction to the game of baseball, because I got to sit down with uh, Baggy and Osmus and a couple other guys, you know, Billy Wagner would linger a little mm. bit. And we would watch some of the West Coast games that were still going and we would talk about pitchers, what we saw in that game we're watching on TV. And then obviously it would transfer into a conversation about the game we just played and how we're going to make adjustments or what did you see or how did you handle that situation? So that's where a lot of uh, a lot of my passion for the game and a lot of my understanding on how to be a professional inside the game and outside of the game came from is just by sitting there and just talking with these guys and sharing stories and listening to, to their experiences and seeing how it could help me uh, further my career. And I'm grateful for that every day. I love hearing that because I was going to ask about the character of that early 2000s Astros team, what it was like. And you, I think you've nailed it there in terms of the different angles and facets that are offered by the characters of Bijo, of Bagwell, of Osmus, uh, and all the guys that were around at that time. I think that's something which I love hearing anecdotes like that and I think that's what real leadership is in a clubhouse is, is mm-hmm. taking in the guys who have just joined and showing them the, the, not just the ropes but talking about the game and breaking things down on a kind of molecular level and passing on that experience and I don't think there's a substitute for that moving on I have to bring it up unfortunately uh, this is the the elephant in the room October <laughs> the, the, the night was October 25th 2005 <laughs> it, it was yep. for for Astros fans, it was a nightmare. But for you, obviously, that must be... Obviously, the next day you won it, but that must be the cherry on top of your career to hit such a momentous home run. I can tell you the time here was about... In the UK, was about <laughs> 6, 30, 6.30 in the morning. I'd been up all night. It was a hammer blow seeing you put that um, pitch from... Was it exactly the Stasio over the right field fence? Sadly, not the last time that a crucial home run would be hit in that sort of area of the ballpark against the Astros in the World Series. But um, was there any business sweetness about that, having spent the time at the club? Or was it at that point, was it more a case of, no, this is the job in hand, bam, just got to do it? Yeah, it well, yeah, it is about being the job at hand. You know, I, I, I was with the San Diego Padres in 2005, and I get traded mm. at the deadline to the Chicago White Sox. And the furthest thing from my mind was, you know, playing the Houston Astros in the World Series. You know, I knew the White Sox were a very good team, but uh, as you're going through the playoffs, you really don't know who it's going to be because the prognosticators, all the oh, records yeah, you look yeah. at say, hmm. you know, the, the Astros snuck in, whatever, you know, because they had a miraculous year that year coming back from, early, you know, early season uh, deficit in their record. Tombstone yeah, year. Christ, yeah. And then you start to get to the playoffs and, we, you know, we blow through the Boston Red Sox 
we beat the Angels in five, so we're done. And as we're watching game five of the Astros Cardinals and, you know, Lidge is on the mound and you're going, <laughs> and you're going, damn, dude, the Astros are going to get in this thing. And I'm, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm trying not to text, you know, Adam Everett Morgan and all these guys going, Hey man, let's go, you know, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, then Albert Pujols hits the home run, which was probably impacted the world series more than a lot of people give it credit because it forced Roger to, yep, yep. Yeah, completely, yep. man. So they hit the home run. I'm like, damn, that, was amazing. And then I'm shifting. I'm like, okay, so the, it's going to be the Cardinals. And then boom, you know, game six Royals wall pitches his pitches ass off. And they, they go yeah, to, yeah, yeah. yeah, dude. And I mean, I'm great. I'm grateful that they won it. But at the same time, I'm going, man, that could have been game one. <laughs> we'd, be down, <laughs> we'd be down 0-1 going into game two in Chicago. But, you know, and, uh, you know, the, then the Astros show up in Chicago and, uh, you know, the workouts kind of overlap a little bit. And I mean, sure enough, I kind of linger on the field a little bit. Adam Everett comes over, Craig Biggio comes over, Baggy comes over. And all of a sudden I'm talking to half the Astros team that I was with, you know, a year and a half ago. Mm. So for it to, ha for that actual home run to happen, you know, the baseball gods have a crazy sense of uh, irony or humor or however you want to look at it. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that the greatest moment of my baseball career happened with a lot of my friends in the opposing dugout. So that made it a little bittersweet. Uh, and to the point where, you know, I hit it and I knew I hit it good, but I, I, it, the trajectory was so low that I wasn't sure it was going to get out. So I didn't have a chance to, you know, pimp it yeah. or bat <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but once it got out, I vividly remembered, you know, oh, my God, it went out. And I wanted to – I just gave a nice little, <clears throat> you know, like a, just a tight little fist pump in front of my <laughs> chest. And the sole reason that I didn't stick my arm in the air the whole way around the, the, the bases is because of the respect that those guys taught me in the other dugout. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know – so, I mean, everybody's like, what you should, that was the biggest over. I'm like, I know, I know, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, it, 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 as much as I did it, it wasn't about me. It was about, you know, winning a world series and not showing my guys up and, you know, showing, uh, you know, some of the respect for everything that they mm. taught me because a lot of, Definitely. you know, who I was moving forward is because of the time I spent in that clubhouse and I didn't want to show those guys up, but uh, truly incredible moment. And I can tell you to this day that I, I still don't remember touching first, second, or third. I only remember hitting home. And uh, I felt like every every sense, you know, sensory, uh, you know, that you have was basically shut off. And I was just literally just floating around the bases until I got to home. And all of a sudden, it literally, you know, the weight and the gravity of the situation just kind of hit me again. And I was like, good God, that was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching it again. I forced myself to watch it again in the lead up to this. I think it even mm. came into home plate at a slightly odd angle because you, you were just running yeah. in a slightly di different way. Um, and I completely understand why that would be the case. I can't even imagine the feeling. It must be genuinely mind-blowing. Of course, you, you then came back to the Astros in 2008. And I know, obviously, that Biggio and Bagwell had retired by that point, but there must have been some amusingly awkward conversations with guys like Lance Berkman and Brad Osmus <laughs> when you came back. I, I, what, what was that like? What kind of things did you say to them? Well, I, I, just to go back a little bit, in 2006, I signed back with the Padres, and mm. we went through Houston after that in 2006, and I got booed pretty good uh, <laughs> when I came back. So <laughs> it kind of it added a little more awkwardness when I did sign back under a new regime with Ed Wade being the GM in 2008. Yeah. 
but it was a little bit of a homecoming and it was an easy decision for me when my agent said, Hey, you know, they're offering you a great deal. I said, that's beside the point. I go, I want to play in Houston because I love the community. I love the ballpark. I love the, the, you know, the guys that were on the team and I wanted to be back in that environment. So it was a really easy decision for me to sign back in 2008. Cause I could have said, no, I want to go someplace else. I don't want to go back there where yeah. they hate me. But I knew that I knew that the community was going to be great about it. And I think it's really, you know, the fact that I can go back and play for them, be their broadcaster, be their voice, you know, is a real credit to Astro fans understanding baseball and understanding that, you know, things happen. We're able to move on from them and become friends again and let, you know, that dirty little secret in our past about 2005 (laughs) kind of hopefully get a little bit easier now that these guys are as good as they are. But, uh, you know, Lance, you know, kind of fish-eyed me a little bit. And he's like, really, you're coming back here to the scene of the crime kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it, but it was, it was fun and it was great. And those guys, they understand the game a little bit uh, to a point. You know, it is a business. Things happen. Yeah, and we're able to move on. But, uh, yeah, I'm always grateful. You know, in 14 years, I played for six different teams. And I spent a majority of my time with that Astro uniform on it. I'm always grateful for that. Mm. It was a different vibe in your second stint, I imagine, because it was after that team, yes. that famous team had, had ended and things were breaking apart and it was a new era. I imagine that the whole atmosphere must have been quite different from when we were chock full of legends and guys that were aiming at nothing other than trying to win that division and get into the playoffs and, and see how much damage they could do. Yeah, the second time around, it was more of, uh, how to, you know, let's find a way to compete because we're losing some of the, uh, the stalwarts, you know, in Biggio and Bagwell. And, uh, you know, Roy Oswalt's in the, in the height of his career. Lance Berkman is, you know, uh, that's when I knew that, it, you know, at the Astros were kind of on that. The backside of a great run is when yeah. Oswalt gets traded, Hunter Pence gets traded, Lance Berkman gets traded, and they start the rebuilding process. So it was, uh, it was, a, it was a dire time inside the organization. Yeah. But uh, we eventually find out that, you know, Drayden McClain, McClain was getting ready to sell the team. And you kind of understand how you start to dismantle things a little bit in order to make that sale. But uh, thank goodness for Jim Crane coming in and producing a winner. Yeah, absolutely. would definitely echo that. More general question about your career. You touched upon it earlier in terms of when you were drafted and also with the uncertainty surrounding the Expos. But what's life like as a major leaguer regarding the moving between clubs? And can you prepare for that kind of life? Is it something that you're always kind of on edge about in the back of your mind? I and mean, obviously, we've all seen Moneyball and the way that it was depicted in that film, the way that trades take place. But I mean, how can you describe how you stop yourself from kind of dissolving into a, a ball of, <laughs> of stress and worries? Because I, I can't imagine living in that kind of shadow of potentially having to completely uproot my family and, and, mm-hmm. and just move around as well. I don't know how you'd kind of summarize that. Well, it's it, every situation is different. Like I said, getting traded from Montreal to Houston, I was grateful because I was going to a contender. Their expectation of winning was there. Mm. And uh, the guys in the clubhouse. You know, I was yep. going in there with uh, some Hall of Famers, so that was awesome. Now, you fast forward to 2003, and my daughter, my oldest daughter was born December 12th of 2003. I got a phone call on December 14th, 2003, telling me I was being traded to the Tampa Bay Rays. And if you remember the Tampa Bay Rays at the time, I don't think they'd won over 65 games in a season. So I was crushed. Uh, you know, leaving the Astros yeah. in 2003, but I understood it was an economical move. Um, you know, Morgan Ensberg was on the uptick of his career and uh, they had to move me. So I understood that and it would happen during the off season. So I had time to 
kind of wrap my head around it and adjust as far as, you know, living arrangements and my new family moving to Tampa. Um, but the one, the one that got me was 2005 when I was with the San Diego Padres, my wife was pregnant with the triplets, had the triplets and, you know, I got to be there for the birth and I was, you know, playing for a, but was basically a hometown team. Yeah. You know, my, my, my extended families were at the game. My, I got to drive home after every home game. And, you know, I have three new babies in the house. So I was, you know, trying to be provide what minimal support I could for my wife who had, all, all of a sudden had four kids in the house. Yeah. I can't and, imagine. Yeah. Uh, the day I got traded at the deadline on in 2005 and I was crying like a baby and, because of so many different things. I did not want to leave that team. I, I really, I felt like I really, you know, mixed in with that team great. And we were in first place. I had a role. I understood it. I embraced it. And uh, I get traded to the Chicago White Sox, you know, where you, you really shouldn't be too upset because I got traded them and they were 15 games up in the central. Yeah. You know, the, the, the expectation of going to the playoffs was there. And that's always beneficial for any player, both uh, for your career and financially. But uh, I, w- I was distraught because I was leaving my family. And I, I you know, what, what am I going to do? How the hell am I supposed to put my wife, the triplets couldn't travel because they were, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were in the NICU for two months. So they were susceptible to, you know, illnesses and disease and viruses and things like yep. that. And they had to stay at home. And, you know, I was going to Chicago by myself. That was another thing that I had to try and handle where my support system in Southern California was pretty mm-hmm. extensive. And uh, I had to leave. And, you know, so my wife very calmly, and then this is another thing that, you know, goes, goes without saying is that if you're, if you're a ball player wife and you're able to maintain a relationship, you, you have to have an extremely strong woman. And my wife is one of those people. And, uh, she, you know, I have tears in my eyes and she's like, she didn't even, she knew too. She goes, uh, where are you going? And it, cause she knew the trade deadline was July 31st. This is the third time I've been traded. She saw it in my eyes and I said, babe, I just got traded to the Chicago White Sox. And as calm as can be, she says with this just a, you know, not an emotionless face, but she knew she had to keep it to keep it together for me. She goes two things. She goes, get your sleep because obviously having four kids, you ain't going to get much sleep. Yeah. And the second was get yourself a ring. And uh, to be able to accomplish both those things kind of kind of came full circle. And that's why I blew the kiss on the home run was because, hey, man, we did it. And uh, that was a truly remarkable year for me. I still get emotional about it because it meant yeah. so much to me. But it's not uh, it's not easy going from uh, clubhouse to clubhouse, you know, cross country and things like that. You can only imagine as an ele- elementary school kid, you know, you're you're in a class and then all of a sudden they just move you to uh, you know a different class where you don't know anybody, and that's basically what it amounts to. Yeah, it's a huge upheaval in someone's life and obviously it impacts on the families directly as well. That's a a stunning story. I'm thrilled that you were able to get through such a situation so triumphantly, if that that makes sense. And I definitely appreciate what you said about ballpark, sorry, about ball players. Wives having to be so strong, they are kind of almost held at the mercy of Major League Baseball front officers in a way. So yeah, I, I think that's a very illuminating outlook on it. What would you advise a young player just starting out in the majors? Is there anything which you'd say 
this is what you should look out for. This is something you should do. I mean, it's a very general question. I wonder, in light of that story, I just wonder if there's anything you would say to anyone embarking on that journey. Uh, if this is truly something you want, you better do everything you possibly can to get it because, you know, it, it's not on, you know, it's not like college where you have a, a head coach pushing you. It's not like a high school team where you have your parents and a head coach pushing you. When you get into baseball, you're on your own and you need to be self-motivated. You need to be dedicated to go out there and work as hard as hard as possible. And towards the end of my career, you know, I started to get around uh, some, some of the younger guys in the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, organization. And, you know, one of the things they said to me was, you know, what advice do you have? And I've always said, work hard, play harder, don't piss anybody off. Because with the amount of movement that is within this game today, whether like we talked about the trades or whether it's being yeah. released um, and, you know, general managers from Tampa Bay are being hired in, in Houston, that it's such an incestual business as far as who's hiring who that that's where the don't piss me off part kind of comes no, from. No, definitely, yeah. Mm. You, you want to have the reputation of a guy who it, who works well inside a clubhouse, who works extremely hard and leaves it on the field. And that's kind of where I come up with that, you know, just that quick little, you know, uh, you know, saying, I guess. Yeah, is, mantra, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just work hard, play harder, and uh, don't piss anybody off because you're going to need some of those people down the road to vouch for you. And unfortunately, in this business, you know, it, it's a scout who sticks their neck out. It's a... It's an ex-teammate who's now a scout that says, oh, yeah, I remember that guy in the clubhouse. He was a real jerk. And the next thing you know, you don't have a job. So uh, there's a lot of implication. But for the most part, for a young young baseball player is to understand that if you are going to chase this dream, you need to chase it to the fullest and do everything physically possible to exhaust your talent to get to where you want to be because nobody's going to push you you're the only one that's going to be able to get yourself there for sure i think yeah the master of your own destiny so to speak mm -hmm. last question on your career was there anything that you'd do differently if you could do it all again nope you know i i think my talent was what it was you know maybe i could have been you know less stubborn and making adjustments at the plate i think about that often but then again i'm going man i'm only who i am <laughs> you mm -hmm. know no, I, I, yeah. it wasn't the you know, I wasn't uh, the everyday aspect of playing, you know, took a toll on my body and I think it affected my numbers. So I think I was very suited in my role to get 300 to 400 at bats a year, be, be a calming uh, influence in the clubhouse. And uh, when I was asked to go out there and perform, it was uh, in some tough moments, but I think that I was mentally uh, built for it. And I think uh, I did as much as I could with my my talent, uh, you know, the, the funny thing that uh, I talk about a lot of guys that played in our era, which was the steroid era, and I did not do steroids. Is you know, it's like, yeah. should I have done it? You know, I'm grateful <laughs> I did. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> because uh. maybe nobody nobody talks about the 99 home runs. Maybe they talk about 110. You know, it's like, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'd say that tongue in cheek. I would never do that uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. the the opportunity was there, but. Uh, no, I, I think that uh, I am grateful for the the career and the path that I took because it's allowed me to be yeah. hopefully a hopefully a great uh, storyteller and a great ambassador for the game of baseball that I love. Absolutely, and it comes across on the broadcast as well. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it, one, because we've run on quite a long way, but also because I think it kind of speaks for itself. I just want to express my admiration for the chemistry that you, there is between yourself and Tokalis and Julie Morales on the Astros broadcast, which really does resonate with, with the viewers. It makes it such an enjoyable experience watching these Astros ball games. 
I think only question I would ask on the subject of that is what advice would you give former players looking to break into the commentary side of things and what should they watch out for there? Well, first of all, the relationship that I have with Todd Callis and Julia are true as true can be. You know, Julia and I really we broke in together in 2013. So she's she's become that uh, that little sister that I never had. And we've developed a great relationship and, you know, even with her husband, he's a fantastic man. And we've been, you know, we have family, we have family outings together with the Moraleses over here. My daughters, you know, uh, have, have leaned on her a little bit and uh, she's been a really, she's been great to be around. Uh, and it's mostly because of her knowledge of the game and her humility about it and wanting to work as hard as she can. And then Todd professional Callis, as well. Oh man. Yeah, off the charts. It's been amazing. Uh, and then Todd Callis is just one of the most prepared human beings I've ever been around. I got to meet him in 2004, so we had a relationship already uh, in Tampa. And then he comes over here, and you talk about an easy transition and just being pure and natural. Obviously, it's in his blood, and it really comes through when he broadcasts. But it's it's great for me to be able to have an instinct and you know react to it. And then Todd throws a number on it and validates it for me. So I really appreciate how he does that. But if I had, uh, you know, the best advice I got, because I didn't go into broadcasting with the intent of being a broadcaster, it kind of presented itself and a uh, door was opened. And fortunately, I walked through it and succeeded at it. But it wasn't without, you know, some trepidation and errors along the way, because in 2012, after I got released from the Diamondbacks, I was given the opportunity in September to broadcast two games for them on the TV side. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'm retired. I'll do it. I think it'd be a lot of fun, and I want to try it. First game I did, I sucked. I mean, I remember <laughs> they, they, put, they put me in the booth, and they said, that's your headset. That's the talk back. That's the cough button. Go. You know, I didn't get any training and I put the headset on. I took the headset off after the game and I remember sitting there just exhausted mentally and I was burned. I was like, man, that couldn't have gone any worse. And I felt like my play by play guy was, you know, frustrated with me. And I was just going, dude, I stink. <laughs> and I had about a week in between the games that I was going to do. So I flew home and I'm thinking about it and I'm, I'm stressing about the next game I'm going to do. And I show up and. Tom Candiotti, the radio color analyst for the Arizona Diamondbacks, who pitched in the big leagues for, for a great while, knuckleballer, and just over overall great guy, comes in and he goes, how'd it go? And I go, dude, I stink. And I go, I'm a little concerned about uh, this game I'm, I'm about to huh. call right now. And he goes, he goes, what happened? And I go, man, I had, I had the stats ready and I had this ready and I just couldn't get it out. And I was stumbling over my words. And he goes, here, I got an idea. He takes all the stats that are on my desk, grabs a trash can and swipes them all into the, into the trash can. And he goes, don't, don't rely on stats. He goes, that's your play-by-play -play guy. Your play-by-play -play guy is all the numbers and facts. And then he goes, point, he points to the field and he goes, where did you do most of your work? And I go, on the field. He goes, what do you know most about? I go, what happens on the field? He goes, that's what fans want to know. They want to know what you think about what's on the field as it happens. And he goes, after a home run, they want to know why the home run happened. After the, after the strikeout, they want to know how they struck him out. If the error was made, they want to know how the error was made or why yeah. the error was made. And that's where all of a sudden I kind of sat down and I said, oh, I got that. I can do that. And then... 
you know, that game was great. And I had an interest in it. The Astros gave me an interview. And now when I broadcast for the Astros, I knew there was no way I was going to replace Jim Deshays. So I kind of, you know, said, I've got to create my own voice. And fortunately, I've got a little bit of self-confidence in in the game and in myself. And I've been very thankful that I've been able to create my own voice and have fans like you and everybody in Houston really appreciate what TK, Julia and myself bring to the game. Absolutely. I think that's a fascinating piece of insight that was given to you there. And I think that's something that a lot of players would be able to look to in terms of trying to mould themselves into a commentating role post-playing career. Really interested to hear that. That's quite eye-opening. Wrapping up, I think we've been having going on for quite a while. Um, <laughs> the, the, the show that you're on is just throws across the globe. And I just wondered, I know you guys do the Twitter Tuesdays on the broadcast during a normal season, but I wondered how aware are you guys of the Astros global fan base, particularly those in Europe, for example, and the UK where I am? Is it something which you guys have much interaction with and also other players aware of that at all? Or is it something which is not really thought of that much? Well, one of the nice things about social media is that we have the ability to see who, you know, reach out and connect across the globe. So I think that's yeah. a great thing. And it did catch a little bit of steam in the last couple of years where we knew that we were kind of reaching a little bit broader fan base across the pond, so to speak. Mm. I don't know, you know, I don't know, whatever that means, but uh, it's you know, around, yeah, around the world, over the Atlantic, <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, there was, I remember specifically, there was a night in uh, Seattle where TK and I were calling the game. The Astros are blowing out the Mariners again. And uh, we're again. getting a little loopy on Astros after dark. And yeah. we kind of we threw out there, you know, hey, let us know, you know, if, if you're listening and where you're at kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, dude, it might have been the craziest response we've gotten on Twitter of any show we've ever done because all of a sudden we started to get thousands of people tweeting at us. I'm in North Dakota. I'm in Nebraska. I'm here. I'm there. I'm at you know, I'm in Bangladesh. I'm in, I'm in the UK. I'm here. Yeah. And we, I'm in Australia. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh no, <laughs> people <laughs> all over, there, over the world are watching this, you know? So I think that's when it kind of came to me a little bit is, uh, you know, during that, you know, two or three years ago when it's, it, it really jumped out to me that, uh, we were having that kind of uh, reach across the globe, but that's the beauty of, you know, streaming apps. That's the beauty yeah. of all of this uh, stuff. So it kind of uh, it, it's a lot of fun to talk about it because, you know, we already talked about this day and age, man, the more conversations we can have, the better understanding we're going to have about people and about uh, our interests. And uh, the conversation starts online where you start to see that, you know, maybe you watch the game a little bit differently, differently than somebody in uh, New York does. And, you know, that's where the fun ensues for me. And I think baseball really lends itself to having some great conversations uh, about the game. For sure. It's one community. And I think that we all can learn from each other. I know it sounds really corny and quite cliched, but it is true. What can we do? I'm speaking specifically from a UK angle here. Is there anything we can do to get more involved, make ourselves more visible? We have a really dedicated fan base over here. It's just under 140 Astros fans over here. I know there are more. I'm going off just Twitter numbers. I literally keep a list of, uh, of every single one of them um, that I come across <laughs> over the years on the account that I run at Astros Fans UK. Is there anything we can do to try and get involved more? Or is it just a case of, no, just stick with the Twitch interactions and roll from there? I don't know. You know what? That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I, I mean, the podcast and pushing that out and, uh, you know, feel free to tag me in anything you need to get that thing out there. Well, um, definitely, yeah. You know, because you know, guests help in, you know, to get the word out. Twitter's good. But, you know, I think finding that 
you know, these Facebook groups, or if you can attach yourself to some of the, you know, Astros nation and on, yeah. on Facebook or, you know, have them kind of push your content out a little bit would help out too. But, uh, you know, I would imagine that, uh, the more delightful and encouraging you are about the game of baseball is only going to attract more people to an environment where they want to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the kind of outlook which I try to carry with it, a lot of positivity, trying to make sure it's one community and gathering everyone together. I will wrap things up now and I, w- I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It is massively appreciated. Before you go, where on social media can people get at you if they want to find you? You can, uh, well, first of all, we have a podcast, Bleacher Blums, which is on all podcast platforms. And then uh, you can also go to bleacherblums.com to find out more about myself and more about uh, David Tuttle, my co-host. On Twitter, I'm at Blummer27. I think you're catching the theme here. And on Instagram, I'm uh, at Blummer27. So if you have any question on where I'm at, just go ahead into whatever social media you're at and type in Blummer27 and you should be able to find me. Fantastic. I would definitely echo that. Bleacher Blums is a high quality podcast just like this one. And um, yeah, make sure you check it yep. out. Cool. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Let me tell you, that was fantastic. A very honest and heartfelt assessment of things from Jeff Blum. A great look behind the scenes at Major League players' connection with the MLBPA during their careers. Plus, a very open and honest outlook on what the wider MLB community can do to help black and Latino players within the sport. I really enjoyed listening to Blum's thoughts and anecdotes about both of his times with the Astros and also the life pressures of being a Major League player, being traded from one team to another at a moment's notice. He's been a terrific co-commentator for the Astros over recent years and long may this continue. Whilst I personally have my doubts over whether a 2020 MLB season and all that it entails is the right thing to do under the shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic, like everyone else, I miss baseball immensely and it would be fantastic if MLB and the MLBPA can work something safe and at least vaguely amicable out for this year. Now, before I go, let's do the big draw to see just who has won the Justin Verlander Replica Astros jersey competition. I've written down the Twitter handles of everyone who entered and assigned each one of you with a number. Most of the entrants were UK Astros fans, but let's find out who is the big winner. Time to head over to Google's trusty random number generator with the number of total entrants set as a maximum. Here we go. The tension is palpable. And the winner is number nine, who is at Ali Uhlenbeck. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who is a UK Astros fan. Congratulations to you. I will send you a DM and get that Justin Verlander replica Astros jersey on its way over to you. Right, that's almost it from me. Don't forget, please make sure to follow me on Twitter at AstrosFansUK if you're not already doing so, and on Instagram as UKAstrosFans. Also, please do follow the guys back in Houston, Apollo Media. That's at ApolloHOU on Twitter. All Houston, all original. And as I said in episode one, with some absolutely awesome merch in their store. So please do get involved. I went with the Verlander competition for episode two. So please keep your eyes peeled for an Apollo Media giveaway in episode three. That's all for now. The only thing remaining is for me to say a huge thank you for listening to Strohs Across the Globe episode two. Please subscribe, rate and review. And I look forward to having you all with me again for the next episode. Wherever you are. Across the globe, let's go Strauss.